Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. So we're coming up on uh, pretty close to Biden's first hundred days, and we're thinking today about the presidency, about Biden's first months in office, and about the general state of American democracy. We have a really fantastic guest to join us to help us figure these things out. We'd like to welcome Dr. Mary Stuckey, Sparks Professor of Communication Arts and Sciences at Penn State University the podcast. Dr. Stuckey is the author of numerous books and articles on presidential communication and rhetoric, too many to name, and has been an inspiration to many scholars of the presidency, including myself. She has a forthcoming book called Deplorable, The Worst Presidential Campaigns from Jefferson to Trump. Thank you so much for joining us, Mary. Delighted to be here. So I want to get started with a kind of table setting question, which is why should we pay attention to rhetoric you know, I think I think a lot of folks kind of talk a lot in the media, talk a lot about, you know, what the president is saying. A lot of political scientists, you know, tend to be focused much more on institutional uh, rules and incentives and political behavior. Uh, but what I mean, why why think about rhetoric? Why think about narrative? What what draws you to this subject and what does it help us understand a, about our politics? That's a really good question. What people don't, I think, often realize is that rhetoric itself is institutional. If you think about things like the inaugural address, the president isn't the president until he is inaugurated, right? So that whole rhetorical ritual, the taking of the oath, the giving of the address, all of that is a public rhetoric that instantiates someone as president in a way that wouldn't be true without all the rhetoric. So if you think about, too, something like the State of the Union address or farewell addresses or um, pardons or vetoes, those are all acts of rhetoric that are also institutional. And so I don't know that the distinction between rhetoric and institutionalism holds up. Yeah, I think that's that's an important point and one that I've also tried to think a lot about in my work thinking about the presidency and, and presidential rhetoric and also communication around parties as institutions. I actually want to kind of transfer our transition to thinking about elections since you've just written this book about deplorable elections and you've also written about 2016 as this kind of change election. And here's here's my question. Um and obviously we, you can tell me if I'm not if I'm not formulating the premise right, but I think that this is a pretty common formulation for 2016 is that people put it in this sort of change framework. You put it in a realignment framework in some of your work. Um and it's kind of lumped in with elections like, say, 1932 as a kind of crisis election, or even I've seen people link it up with 1860. I know that's a little different than your deplorable framework, but it's often in this kind of crisis comparison group. And I look back on 2016, and maybe, you know, especially compared with 2020, but also compared with 2008, 2016, things were fine. There was not really a pressing economic crisis or social crisis in the way that we've traditionally thought about it. My question comes down to the thing that's probably going to bug me for my entire professional life. What was it about 2016? Why does it belong in this group? Yeah, so putting it in that group is always, is, is I, I agree, I'm 
ambivalent about it. Although I put it there because while I don't know that we could make the argument that there was a material crisis, say in the sense of 1932, I think it's entirely true that there was a rhetorical crisis and a crisis maybe of legitimacy uh, within the political system. So one of the arguments I make in the Deplorables book is that when deplorable or despicable discourse is more likely under certain kinds of conditions. And one of the conditions that makes these kinds of elections more likely is when the system lacks legitimacy. Because when the system is strong, when people believe in the system, parties, you know, and this is like stuff you do better than I do, the system itself can prevent candidates like Trump from arising. And when the system is weak, they become more possible. And so I think we put 16 in that kind of crisis place because it, it was in some senses a crisis of legitimacy. And I think that kind of counts as a crisis too. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I want to actually follow up thinking about a couple things. One is, could you um, could you spell out what you what you mean by despicable rhetoric? Sure. In my case, um, I talk about deplorable elections being characterized by despicable discourse. And this points to a couple of, I think, important problems because despicable discourse circulates a lot and then it will go away and it goes away because the system pushes back against it. And so since 1968, the Republican Party and to some extent the Democrats as well have not pushed back against it. And so it's gotten to be bigger and bigger. And so what I mean by despicable discourse is anti-democratic discourse, discourse that excludes discourse that specifically questions the patriotism of one's opponents, that delegitimates the political system in general, that works toward anti-democratic ends. And so obviously discourses of overt racism would fall under that, but also the kind of discourse that says that someone is disqualified for office because of gender, because they lack patriotism. So saying that someone is unpatriotic, if you have evidence that they've committed treason, is not despicable discourse, right? But challenging someone by saying they don't love their country without evidence would be despicable discourse. Yeah, I think this is something that people who are skeptical of rhetoric sort of miss in the, the larger picture is the way in which like the relationship between discourse and evidence and the importance of that for for a functioning democracy. I want to ask one more follow up and then I'll then I'll let Lee talk. But I I'm curious how, like, how does 2020 fit into this? Is 2020 of a piece with 2016? Is it, do we see a significant shift in the kind of discourse that's there? What is, how would you characterize a sort of system discourse in 20, in the 2020 election? 2020 is so interesting for the following reason. Um, usually when presidents get into office on the basis of uh, despicable discourse, they learn once they're in office, or they decide that as president, they need to at least put forth the fiction that they are president of all the people. So 1968, Richard Nixon gets elected based on the Southern strategy, but his language is never overtly anti-democratic, right? Which is why rhetoricians are more interested in language than political scientists. Political scientists and historians tend to take words at their face value 
rhetoricians are more inclined to go, huh, what's really going on here? Like what's actually being said without being said? And so Nixon in 68, most other presidents who get elected on the basis of this kind of uh, discourse pivot once they're president to a more open-ended, broader audience. So they have to learn, even if they get elected based on a small segment of the electorate, once president, they speak to the NAACP or they talk to women's group. And so they have to find ways to broaden their rhetorical appeal and their rhetorical uh, repertoire. Donald Trump never did that, right? He never tried to expand his audience at all. He, the whole time he was in office, he talked to exactly the same people he talked to as part of his electoral coalition, which of course created some kind of problems for his governing coalition, you know, but in a circumstance of high partisanship and, you know, all the institutional things. So in 2020, he doesn't have a broader repertoire, which is why his language in 2020, people kept saying, oh my God, he sounds exactly like 2016. He tried the same things against Biden that he tried against Clinton, but Biden's not a Clinton, right? There's not 30 years of hard right hatred for Joe Biden. He's an old white guy, so the gender appeals don't work. He isn't embroiled in scandal, so that didn't work. He didn't have an email problem, so that didn't work. But Trump never had the ability to go beyond the 2016 election. And it was just different enough that it mattered in 2020. There's a lot I want to ask you about here, but I I think I I first kind of want to back up to kind of understand what you mean by this deplorable uh, rhetoric. I mean, what are what are the other examples? You talk about Nixon. I'm not sure if that fits into your typology, but like, what are the other elections? And is this how how is this different than than the kind of traditional you know political science story about these crisis realigning elections? Yeah, so it is a little bit different. Some of the other elections I look at, I look at, oh my God, I'm going to try to remember, 1924 is in there. Um, So many members of the Klan showed up at a Democratic convention in 1924 that they couldn't pass a resolution condemning the violence of the Klan, right? They called it a Klan bait because so many Klansmen were in the room in Madison Square Garden. Um, I use 1876. I talk about 1924, 1876. Tell us a little bit more about those elections, because I think those are elections. I mean, well, particularly 1924 is kind of an election that not many people think too much about. Right. And so what's interesting about 1924, of course, for a rhetorician is that Silent Cal wins. <laughs> and so there's a little like a guy who's famous for not speaking somehow wins the election. But that's an election in which... Um, There were specific arguments made about anti-Catholicism was a thing. The Klan was a thing. Um, And in some way, it's always tricky to to do history because on on questions of racism, because there's always this compulsion for people to say, oh, but, you know, it wasn't so bad then because it was universally accepted. Well, you know what? It wasn't universally accepted. There are always pushback arguments. There's never a reason why in a democracy you need to overtly exclude people 
on specific kinds of terms. And so while, it, yeah, you could make an argument that there's deplorable elements in just about every election we've had, I want to argue that there are moments when that tips over into the whole election kind of becomes a wash in dreadful discourse in which democracy itself takes a hit. And what's interesting about some of these elections is that one side or another will often claim that democracy itself is at stake. And so when that's the case, right, then they make these claims that any means justify the end of protecting democracy. So I look a lot at the elections, um, 1968, 1992, 2016, and then I do a small bit on 2020, which is more of a hot take, right? Because I, I had to write it so close to the end of that election. But I want to talk for a second about 1968. And one of the reasons that's in there is because if you think back to 1964, Nelson Rockefeller takes on Barry Goldwater and the sort of overt hatred, awful things that are happening on the margins in 64. And they boo him off the stage at the Republican National Convention. In 1968, Rockefeller stays quiet. He doesn't challenge the Southern strategy. And he knows what the Southern strategy is. He knows it in great detail. There's a 90-page memo in his archives that details all of the reasons why the Southern strategy is bad. And he says not a word and pretty much turns over the Republican Party to that faction um, at that moment. And I think that's a super important moment in the history of this kind of election. What about 92? I mean, I kind of remember it as a somewhat banal election with Ross Perot as, you know, this sort of weird maverick. But what about that strikes you as noteworthy? Right. So obviously 1988 is the easier candidate in some ways because of Willie Borden. But in 1992 is the, I mean, Ross Perot's out there um, further delegitimating, by the way, the system. And so that's important because a lot of what Ross Perot is doing sort of opens the door, I think, to the kind of rhetoric the Tea Party is going to adopt later on. But also, 92 is the Republican National Convention where George Bush pretty much turns it over to Pat Buchanan, to Jerry Falwell. That's the election where Buchanan declares, you know, the culture war, where he argues he, he, he refers to the Democrats as, you know, appearing in drag because they're acting so moderate. Uh, so he he really does some kind of terrible things at the Republican National Convention. And 92 is also interesting because of the behavior of the Democrats. I argue that in some ways the Southern strategy goes bipartisan in 1992. Bill Clinton uh, does some really Southern strategy kinds of things regarding Jesse Jackson um, and his little pretend fight with Sister Soldier. He domesticates Hillary Clinton in ways that are super interesting in terms of gender. And also the attacks on the women who were accusing Clinton of sexual impropriety was really damaging, I want to argue, to women in politics in general. And so I, I want to say there's a lot of stuff that happens deplorably in that election. So another point that I, I want to pick up, um, you know, is the point about the the, the 
system not holding. And I want to push a little bit on that. I mean, because I think the, the the sort of standard story of 2016 is that it was, you know, either a failure of the Republican Party to organize, to, to marginalize Trump, or alternately that Trump just tapped something that was really deep and building in the Republican coalition, and it was just inevitable that Trump or or somebody like Trump would eventually take over the party. How do you think about the the system failing in 2016? So I think about it in terms of, um, I guess I would call it system legitimacy. If the system is, if people trust the political system, then that's a moment in which mainstream rhetoric is infinitely more likely. So you get the kind of campaign you got in, say, 1952, right? Trust in the system is pretty high. People, especially white people, are feeling pretty good about things. And so you get a kind of boring, mainstream political election in which everything looks pretty stable. And the less legitimacy the system has, the more open people are to candidates who base their arguments on the system is illegitimate, I can save you. So the personal presidency, you know, has been a thing since Ted Lowy noticed it, you know, a whole long time ago. But presidents use rhetoric to support the system. They can, presidential candidates and presidents can also use it to undermine the system. And the less faith people have in the system, the more likely, the harder it is for actors associated with the system to push back against um, that kind of insurgent, unconventional rhetoric. And institutions like the media, they're political institutions too. And so I would put them in that same bucket of lacking certain kinds of legitimacy and relying on particular kinds of norms and behaviors. They were not well positioned to push back against the kind of insurgency created by Trump. And it's interesting to me that often in the elections I have defined as deplorable, you see new media technologies um, getting used. Yeah, that um, I think is one of the really interesting points about deplorable elections that you've you've raised in that research. And also, you know, I do think it's really interesting to think about some of these elections that we don't often classify um, as kind of notable or particularly negative. The 92 point in particular is well taken. I want to think about how this all sets the stage for the, the Biden presidency. So we've got a situation in which anti-system candidates, not just Trump, but I think Bernie Sanders fits into this in 2016. Also, in these sort of widespread discourses of challenging the legitimacy of the system. And then, you know, enter 2020 and Biden, who, you know, if, if any candidate has embodied the system in the last um, couple of decades, it's it's him, right? Former vice president, he's been in the Senate for 80,000 years. And so I'm, I'm curious, kind of what is the what is the situation that Trump sets up? Are there ways in which the Trump presidency opens up an opportunity to do what you were just saying is really difficult for candidates to do to defend the system? Or does Biden end up sort of inserting himself in that anti-system discourse? So what is what is your read on his candidacy and early presidency in that regard? I think what Biden has done both in his candidacy and definitely since he's been president, 
is mobilize the institution and institutional rhetoric and institutional actions in favor of system stability, right? So his cabinet is particularly representative. He puts an, um, an American Indian woman as secretary of the interior and then lets her speak on those issues. Joe Biden is a super interesting president because he doesn't mind taking second chair, right? So he'll let Harris talk. He'll let different cabinet secretaries talk. He mobilizes you know, his very good press secretary to articulate arguments for the administration. He's mobilizing the institution in terms of coronavirus, you know, in terms of we're actually going to get infrastructure week, you know, all of those kinds of things is he's moving through things institutionally in ways that, you know, Obama certainly didn't do. Um, his own rhetoric is, is low key. He's not especially eloquent, although his um, inaugural was perfectly fine. Um, he did a lovely speech, you know, in October at Gettysburg. So it's not like he's blind to eloquence, but his rhetoric is much more um, familiar, much more common sense, uh, much more lower key than that, say, of the Obama administration. So I want to ask a, a question here about the way in which the system versus anti-system dynamic has, you know, especially in the, the the last two elections, has become so much of a partisan fight. I mean, if you think about the 1924 election, you know, that, that was an election in which you had a very strong third party candidate, Robert LaFollette, who, you know, was basically, a, you know, a progressive when you know, both parties had nominated basically, you know, a very establishment pro-business candidates. You know, 1968, you have a strong third party challenge from George Wallace, who's, you know, basically saying there's not a dime's worth of, of difference, you know, between Humphrey and Nixon. Uh, 1992, of course, we, we talked about Perot as the anti-system candidate, but those are all third party challengers uh, who kind of are, are very anti-establishment. Now what we have, it feels like something different. And I mean, the Republican Party has always been sort of, you know, the opposition party in a broad sense, but that one party is anti-system and one party is is pro-system. And to the extent that, you know, the, the, the president defines what the party is about through through rhetoric. I mean, what are the what are the consequences of that dynamic? And, and is there any way in which that resolves in a way that's not totally destructive, especially if uh, the Republican Party takes back power with it with an even more uh, aggrieved anti-system candidate? Yeah, I mean, LaFollette is, is, of course, particularly interesting because he was a much stronger candidate. I mean, the Democrats had done such a terrible job at their own convention that they pretty much destroyed themselves and, and they weren't a viable um, presence in 1924 at all. And we can talk some more about that, I guess. But I think this question of like what the fact that it's become a partisan question is super important in terms of, I think, looking to the future and, and what may or may not be possible. I want to say that this is one of the reasons why the whole relief plan and the infrastructure plan and what Biden is, I think, 
specifically trying to do is demonstrate the ways in which government can help people. And by people, of course, he refers to the middle class. What he's really talking about and what everybody is always really talking about are, you know, the disaffected white people who um, voted or didn't for Obama and then supported Trump and seem to be very volatile, <laughs> to say the least, right now. And I think what Biden's trying to do is it's kind of a almost an FDR kind of move in which mobilizing the power of government to get actual aid in some form or another to enough people to prevent you know what FDR saw as a potential revolution is really the plan. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if that if it gets through Congress and if it does, whether it works in the way that I think the Democratic administration is hoping it will. In the context of this very disaffected and angry, aggrieved um, Republican rhetoric. I've been thinking a lot about the FDR comparison. I spent a lot of time this semester in class with my students talking about the president and party relationship and FDR and the purge. And one of the things we've been kind of thinking about is the the way in which presidents can no longer wield an FDR type majority. But on the other hand, one thing that I've sort of been contemplating this is what's, you know, what's changed is the nature of the democratic coalition. It's smaller, but it's sort of more focused on on some of the same issues. Obviously, there's still some some internal diversity. But I wonder about that a lot, too, and kind of thinking about... This makes me think of some of your earlier work on defining the way presidents define the nation and the emphasis that you have put on um, inclusive definitions. And I wonder about kind of what that, what that plays out like in the current contemporary uh, partisan landscape, which is obviously something Lee and I both think about a lot and we talk about a lot on the pod, is is there a possibility for a kind of smaller but more purposive majority? This might be beyond the purview of where we're, where we're going in this conversation, but I thought I'd throw it out there. That's a super interesting question, Julia. And I think, yeah, so the I, I would say the book uh, Deplorables is the dark twin of defining American, right? And Defining Americans, I was, you know, sort of looking at the ways in which um, different groups finally, in a limited way, are uh, given inclusion in the American polity. And it's this sort of narrative of hopefulness. Um, deplorable is less hopeful, <laughs> um, without a doubt. And I think one of the geniuses of Roosevelt is that he didn't you know, with the exception of rare occasions like his tirade, you know, his delightful tirade against Martin Barton and Fish, he almost never named people, right? He talked about the forces of entrenched greed or economic royalists or selfish capitalists. But it was always possible for rich people, for former Republicans, for almost anybody to see themselves in some way in Roosevelt's polity. Um, that he had expansive enough visions of what it meant to be American. And Biden, in a very less eloquent kind of way, is also stressing the neighborhood, the neighborliness, the community. Biden has problems Roosevelt didn't. 
um, including it, you know, Roosevelt built the administrative state and he built it in that sort of ad hoc, chaotic way that he did. But also Roosevelt was able to and relied often on Judeo-Christian values. I mean, the, those themes run very consistently through his rhetoric and through his understanding of what it meant to be a citizen. Um, Biden can't play that card. And that that sort of um, quasi-religious, civic religion source of community that was so powerful in the 30s, that's just not available anymore. And the consequences of that for what looked like national unity, and I say looks like national unity just because Roosevelt's polity was really quite exclusionary in ways that we treat as invisible. Um, and those kind of invisible exclusions aren't really possible anymore either. So there's actually hope in that um, for authentic inclusion um, on a broader scale, but it's going to have consequences, no doubt. Yeah, that's, I, I mean, that's, I, I like to kind of bring our podcast to a close on this more hopeful note. Lee, do you have any final thoughts or questions? Well, I'd like to actually kind of ex expand on that point about, you know, defining the polity. And I think one of the key things that Biden kept hitting on was this idea of unity, which I guess meant some sort of coming together. But what is kind of the, the meaning of unity that you, you think Biden can actually develop in his presidency? And how should he go about defining that unity? Because uh, it, it seems like something that Americans want, they want to come together. But the challenge of unity is they can't unify around what unity means. So, you know, to not to get too meta, but but is there potential for a unifying vision of of unity? And what would you, you know, tell Biden and his, his speech writing team uh, if you were to consult with them? That's a really hard question. I, I'm going to go back again to my guy, FDR, because I think one of the really smart things that FDR did was wield the concept of the good neighbor, uh, which we think of only in terms of his policy towards Latin America, but he actually had like good neighbor clubs, which were ridiculous, but um, he thought a lot about the idea of community. And he was working in a polity that had strong religious differences. You know, Roosevelt's one of the people that helped disable anti-Semitism for a time in this country. Um, there was a rural-urban divide. There were obviously huge financial um, economic discrepancies. And through the idea of neighborhood, um, he allowed people to think about both a limited version of diversity, but also a version of community, right? If you have people in your neighborhood, they have something in common with you. They don't have to be exactly like you. They, you can understand neighborliness as meaning any number of things. Um, you can see about it as being equality. You can think about it as being charity. You can think about it as having common goals and a common good. So I, I kind of like the metaphor of neighborhood. I mean, the trick there, right, is that neighborhoods have boundaries and metaphors have entailments. So any language that you try to use to talk about unity is also going to have boundaries. That's 
how metaphors work. And um, so you have to think carefully about what you want to include and exclude. And, you know, I think Biden so far has worked hard on trying to exclude anger and hatred um, from his polity, right? And so anyone who's not angry can come play in his backyard. Uh, I'd have to look more closely at some of his other speeches to, to go into that. But if I was going to give him advice, I would tell him to stress neighborliness. That's a great historical question or historical parallel though. there. I want to ask one last question before we wrap up. And that has to do with, with institutional failure, bringing this back to our kind of motivating question of our entire podcast and to some of the core themes of your recent work. What's the, what's the relationship between the sort of rhetorical performance of systemic dissatisfaction, which you have, you know, you link this specifically to um, kind of white, racial grievance in some of the work that you alluded to. What's the relationship between that kind of performance of dissatisfaction with the the reality of institutions failing people? How do we grapple with that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I do think a little bit at the end of the book about what needs to happen. And I think that the institutions themselves I mean, it's okay to say that institutions aren't working, you know, for the current country the way that perhaps we want them to, right? I would be a fan of rethinking the the Electoral College. I have problems with the Senate uh, and its overt lack of proportional, you know, anything that looks like proportional representation. I'd be happy to see the House expand. Um, I'd like to see Citizens United overturned, right? I think that it's okay to think about what kinds of institutional change make the government more responsive to legitimate grievances that have to do with, I'm a white person who got hosed by um, globalization, you know, globalization. Um, I'm a black person who has been, you know, treated inequitably for generations. I mean, those are not illegitimate. I don't think they're equally terrible grievances, but I think that a government that refuses to respond to legitimate grievances is a government that is in trouble. That is a, I think, really excellent and thematic note for us to to end on. This is really fascinating. I can't wait for the book. Deplorable uh, will be out this uh, coming fall with Penn State Press. Thank you so much, Mary Stuckey, for talking with us today on Politics in Question. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.